0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew five, twenty one through twenty six, which can be found on page six eighty-four of some of your few Bibles. Five twenty one through twenty six. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, it is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have nailed, paid the last penny. May God bless this work.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. No matter what um, political party you lean towards, be it you know, Democrat, Republicans, Socialists, Green Party, Libertarian Party, or even if you're independent, I think. Well, hopefully, I think one thing we can all agree on is the recognition of, you know, an increasing of the increasing heated rhetoric that's been going around. And, and it seems to me it's been elevated since the start of the 2016 election process. Um, and, and also a you know, belief that it's just got to stop. You know, when you have government uh, figures or affiliates or, or members of the news media wishing that someone would assassinate the president or uh, admitting that he prayed to God that um, he wished God would take the president's life. And this, by the way, was towards President Obama when he was finishing his term. And of course, you have people doing the same for our current president. When you have someone admitting that he's glad that Representative Steve Scalise got shot during the Republican baseball practice or someone shooting Democrat Gabby Gifford several years earlier. When it seems you have members of both sides just exaggerating issues to get their supporters more entrenched, into their beliefs and more inflamed against those who would care to think differently, you know, it's gone too far. Uh, you know, should be, there be such vitriol being thrown around? After the shooting incident on the baseball field, it was nice to, nice to see, you know, Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi stand together in unity to say, you know, this, this, this rhetoric, this, this, this hatred being spewed has got to stop. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems short-lived, uh, you know, because it, it still seems to be, you know, happening. And, and maybe I haven't been around long enough to to, to remember such viciousness in a, such a political context. You know, I, I believe there may have been times in the past that this could have happened. Uh, and maybe, too, the difference is that now in our society of instant information, we're just more able to be cognizant of all that's going on, which aggravates the problem. You know, either way, it, it just seems you know, that it, there's got to be an end. And in our passage for this morning, we're going to see that Jesus would have something to say on this matter. Um, but let me take a couple of minutes just to kind of review where we've been and, and you know and what we're doing and, and where we're at right now. Uh, so as you can see from the you know kind of the header slide that we've been using, we're in a Middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we're calling Living a Kingdom Lifestyle. And we're calling it this because arguably, nowhere else in Scripture is there contained such a concentrated, uh, uh such a concentrated piece of instruction on how to live as members of God's kingdom. If you were here three Sundays ago, you may recall I preached a message on the passage right before this, which spoke on Christ in the Old Testament law. And not to you know, rehash the message that I preached three weeks ago, but a couple of points I want us to recall from that sermon. Um, first is that one of the ways Jesus fulfills the law was through his explanation of it. You know, If, you're, if you recall, there were those religious who were considered religious teachers of the day, you know, telling people, "This is what the Old Testament law meant." But they missed the true meaning and purpose of the law. So Jesus came to correct their teaching and instruct his listeners on the fuller meaning and intent of the law. You know, this is one of the ways he fulfilled it. Beginning in our passage for today and extending through the rest of chapter 5, Jesus demonstrates this. Our passage begins what people, or what some scholars refer to as the sixth antithesis. And they call it the sixth antithesis because this is where Jesus begins each section with something like, you have heard it said, meaning this was your understanding or this has been your understanding of this command. But then he says, but I tell you, meaning that he's going to go on to explain the purpose of the command. And if you kind of skim through the rest of chapter 5, if your Bible has you know, subheaders for each chapter, uh, you know you can skim it to see this. It talks about oaths, it talks about adultery, it talks about loving... Your enemies. In each of these places, Jesus will start off by saying, You have heard it said, and then he will continue, But I tell you. And then the other thing I want us to recall from the past sermon is that at the end, Jesus tells his listeners that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, which would have been most shocking to his audience because the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people of that day. They were meticulous in trying to follow. The law, and as we go through these six antitheses, we will see that Jesus' explanation of these laws would not only be shocking for the people of that day, but it will—I think—we'll find it shocking to us nowadays. But this is how Jesus says people are to live in order for their righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. So let's get into our text for this morning. Jesus starts off in verse 21. You have heard it said that it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And this would have been familiar with his listeners back then, and it's probably familiar to us because, you know, as we may recall, it's taken directly from the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 5:17, where it lists the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment states exactly what Jesus quotes, do not murder, you shall not murder. And the term murder used is the correct one because the commandment relates specifically to intentional manslaughter. It's not meant to include things like accidental killing or deaths resulting from things like war. Passages such as those in Numbers 35 go into more description and more detail of what falls into the categories of murder. In verses 16 to 21 of Numbers 35, God says things like, If someone strikes another with an iron object and kills him, if someone holds a stone or or a wooden object and kills that person, if someone shoves another person, throws something at him, or hits him with his fist so that the person dies, all these things would have that person be considered a murderer. And that person who committed that act shall be put to death. And so this mostly Jewish audience, you know, those who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount, would have been familiar with this teaching. Not only that, but up to this point, they would have probably felt pretty good about themselves, especially the Pharisees, because they probably had never committed such an act. They probably never were guilty of an act of physical murder. The Pharisees could remain confident in their righteousness, knowing that they had never done this, But their confidence would have been short-lived because Jesus proceeds to raise the bar and raise the bar quite dramatically because, once again, he's going to explain the true intent of the command in a way that impacts our reactions and our relationships. Regarding our reactions, he says this, You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then in verse 22, he says, but I tell you, anyone who says to his brother, Rocket, is answerable to, answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. To, summa- to summarize Jesus' statement, I like how Piper put it in that reconciliation, uh, I'm sorry, I like how Piper in that anger sorry, can lead to your, excuse me, anger can imperil your soul. Anger can imperil your soul. Committing an act of murder is wrong. But Jesus gets into the motivation behind the murder. He first talks about contemptuous anger. And he says, even if you feel this, you are guilty. So if a person says or thinks, I hate this person so much, I wish he were dead. Or I wish him ill will. According to Jesus, that's the same is committing murder. Even statements, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, I'm glad someone shot Steve Scalise. Well, I wish our president would be assassinated. I think that would fall into this category. And maybe that's not so difficult to reconcile in our minds. Yeah, if we think it, it's the same as doing it. But Jesus even pushes the stakes even higher when he gets into things like cursing out someone or name-calling. To the best of our knowledge, raka is a term that meant empty-headed. And the term fool, we understand. And I think those terms back in Jesus' day when he was on earth were held in much more disdain than they are now. So maybe if Jesus was... You know, giving the sermon now, he would use other terms which, you know, I wouldn't repeat, but which we, you know, understand to be more harsh. But, you know, you get the point. You know, Jesus teaches that even saying these things may condemn us. You know, some see the three statements that Jesus made in their consequences. You know, that if you get angry, you're subject to to judgment. If you call someone rocky, you are guilty in court. If you call someone a fool, You're in danger of the fire of hell as escalations of judgment. But I think they actually refer to the same thing. Doing any one of these things can condemn you before God. Because more so than the physical act of murder, God is more concerned with the hate going on inside a person's heart. You know, at times I've been out on the road and maybe I did something unintentionally that another driver didn't like, you know, and then the driver pulls next to me and, and uses one of his fingers to tell me I'm number one, you know, and, and if I build up such content for that person that I wish him ill will or harm, from this passage, Jesus would call me out and he would say, you know, you're the same as a murderer. You know, what troubles us from this teaching is the seemingly great disproportion between what we perceive to be the small sin of anger and its huge consequence, you know, the possibility of eternal punishment in hell. But through this teaching, we must be aware, as one commentator put it, that even ordinary insults may betray an attitude of contempt, which God takes extremely seriously. He takes it seriously because God knows that anger leads to hate, and hate can build up so strongly inside of us that, it, that we begin to wish harm on another person, whether we would physically commit the act or not. So we need to be very mindful of what's going on inside our hearts. In First John 3, John restates Jesus' teaching very clearly. He says this, he says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Jesus even gets more pointed in the next section to teach us that we not only need to be concerned about what's going on inside of us, but we also need to be conscious of what's going on around us regarding our relationships. He continues in verse 23 to 26 Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, When they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. He may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. His anger can imperil your soul. So Jesus is teaching that division will impede your worship. division will impede your worship. You can imagine the scenario. Someone has arrived at the temple with an animal in tow, ready to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. You know He walks past the outer gates into the outer courts of the, te- of the temple. He enters the inner courts of the temple and hands a sacrifice to the priest for the priest to offer as a sacrifice on his behalf. And then he realizes someone has something against them. And if this is the case, Jesus tells us here that the brother should just stop. Like, don't even make the offering. Go back and reconcile with that person first before you give the offering. And remember, too, that you know, people didn't have cars back then, so getting to the temple may not have been so easy of a task. Those living in the outer regions of Jerusalem may have had to travel more than a day to even get to the temple, which would make Jesus' instruction even more difficult. But Jesus still says, stop, go back home. I don't care how long it takes. To you go do it and make peace with your brother, then come back and give your offering. And notice how, too, Jesus reverses the situation in his teaching. And the first part of his instruction is, it was, if you're angry, if you hate someone, you're guilty. Now it's not you who has the anger or hate, it's someone else. You now, why would Jesus say this? Why would he want you to do this even if you harbor no bitterness or ill will towards another person? It's because he wants us to understand that reconciliation is more important to God than worship. And with this understanding, I think a couple of important clarifying points need to be made. First, when Jesus says, if you remember that someone has something against you, go and leave your gift at the altar, it's implicit that the individual is already aware of a person holding something against you. So if you're not aware of any conflict, you know, go and worship freely. It's not like, you know, before you drop your offering in the offering bag, you have to go around everyone here, you know, ask, do you have something against me? Do you have something against me? You know, that's not what Jesus is saying. If you're not aware of any conflict, that anyone has, you know, something against you, worship freely. You're fine. Worship with a clean conscience. And also based on the previous you know verses, I think also related to this point is what's being referred to is a situation where someone holds bitterness against you because of a wrong or sin you have committed against them. Jesus isn't referring to things like, you know, theological or political differences or minor disagreements. In fact, earlier in Matthew five when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his listeners that people will persecute you and insult you because of you know, your relationship with Jesus. So no, you're not, nece- you're not to necessarily feel responsible for all the grudges or anger people may hold against you. But, if you sinned against a person to enact your deed, and if he or she harbors resentment against you because of that, you are to go and reconcile with that person. A second point that I feel is important to bring or to mention regarding this aspect is that you are responsible to seek reconciliation, but not necessarily achieve it. Because it takes two willing parties to agree to reconcile. So if you have pursued reconciliation with that person to the best of your ability, but the person is still unwilling to be reconciled with you, it's Okay. You've done your part. Romans twelve eighteen is an interesting, perp- an interesting verse. Paul says this. He says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I think the middle part is key. As far as it depends on you, as much as you have a responsibility to do this, pursue peace, pursue reconciliation, but if it isn't successful, it's okay. You can still have a clean conscience and worship freely. I had a friend uh, who got divorced several years back. And, um, you know, he got divorced because his wife um, wanted to divorce him. Um, you know, they both uh, claimed to be believers and. Um, you know, my friend did all he could to try to pursue reconciliation. He was willing to go to counseling. He was willing to do whatever it took to, to try to seek reconciliation. But the wife says, no. He you know, said, no, I want a divorce. And he had to, you know, go along with it because the wife was unwilling to pursue reconciliation. So you can pursue it to the rest you know, best of your abilities and it may still may not be successful. But it's okay. If you've done your part, you can have a clean conscience, you can worship freely. But if you haven't tried to pursue that reconciliation, Jesus would tell you, go and do it. And go and do it immediately. Jesus would go so far to instruct us to like leave service now and take steps of reconciliation. Because to him, that's more of a priority. He implies that your worship now won't make a difference if you haven't reconciled with your brother or sister. Okay. And from these three verses, or four verses from 23 to 26, I believe the two examples given, you know, a brother who sins against you, or an adversary taking you to court, are given in order for Jesus to show the scope of his instruction. We must not only pursue reconciliation with other believers, those who are referred to as brothers and, of course, our sisters. We must pursue reconciliation with unbelievers, those who Jesus labels here as our adversary. Jesus stresses human reconciliation over worship because he knows as much as we do that reconciliation is a lot harder than giving a sacrifice or giving an offering. It's much harder for us to go up to someone and ask forgiveness than it is for us to write a check and drop it in the offering bag. But Jesus teaches, this is how your righteousness is to be greater than the Pharisees. This is how you will show that you are different as my followers from the rest of the world. And I know when we reflect on Jesus' teaching in this manner, you know, it's easy to feel accused. I mean, you know, have you ever felt contemptuous anger against someone? Have you cursed at someone, whether loudly or under your breath? Have you had broken relationships that you weren't so desirous to reconcile? You know, who is a murderer? According to Jesus' teaching, we all stand at the condemned. You know, he set the standard so high that no one could keep it. And That's exactly what he wants to do. Jesus wants people to recognize that none of us can meet God's righteous standard on our own. No one can meet a standard, which is why Jesus came down to earth to live a life we couldn't live and die that he didn't deserve to atone for our failures. And that's the gospel. That's what we're going to remember in a few minutes during communion. But also, just because we may fall far short of meeting God's standards, it doesn't mean we are exempt from trying to follow them. Jesus, through his death and the gift of the Holy Spirit, empowers us to be able to pursue God's holy standards and do things that we would be, not be able to do on our own. Not that we will always succeed, but we press on, seeking to meet God's higher standards. And we also remember and are motivated by the example of Jesus. You know, if you think about it, he had every right to be angry with us through the times we've disobeyed him, right? He had every reason to righteously hate us. He had every reason to send us away because of our rebellion. But instead of doing these things, what did he do? He pursued reconciliation. And he did so to the fullest extent that he needed to by sacrificing his life for us. That was the only way we could have been reconciled back to God. And so that's what Jesus did. And if that's the extent holy Jesus would go so that vile sinners could be reconciled with him, then could we at least try to follow Jesus' examples with fellow sinners? That's what Jesus asks of us. So may God search our hearts to reveal any hate or contemptuous anger inside of us and help us to work to remove it. May he give us courage to pursue relationships that need to be reconciled. And may reconciliation be achieved by his grace. May we do this through Jesus, who committed the ultimate act, of reconciliation for us. Let us be examples to this dark world by not returning spewed hate with our own hateful rhetoric, but being reconcilers as Christ exemplified and taught. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your instruction. And Lord, we admit, this is our teaching. Lord, who could ever meet these standards? Through this instruction, Lord, we know we are all guilty. And we pray for your forgiveness, and we thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. But Lord, through your Spirit, also empower us to pursue lives of love and reconciliation, to have thoughts which are honorable to you, actions which are animal to you and to live harmonious, harmoniously with one another so that the world will know that we are your followers We pray these things in Jesus name Amen